0: I want to start off this evening with a couple comments, and the first one is this. I hope you guys know how much I love you all. You know, in August, I started my 36th year here, and I took care of some of your daddies and mommies. And uh, I was reminded of that this week when I had a patient, and she said, oh, you had my mom and dad. So it's just such a blessing for me, not only to be here where my brother is, and I have association with him, but just to interact with you all, and I hope you know how much you mean to me. That, that's the first comment. The second comment is, I'm going to be talking about Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman at the well. And I have some trepidation because Pastor Andy has already covered both of these chapters in John, and when Andy dissects a chapter, you have heard it all. But uh, what I'm going to do is look at the two and look at the contrasts that are compelling between the two and then draw some comparison conclusions from uh, this study. So Charles Dickens began a tale of two cities with the words, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. And as you study John three and four, you might believe that Nicodemus was the best that humanity had to offer. And the woman at the well was an example of the worst that life can do to a person. So we're gonna look at these two. First, I'm gonna look at some compelling contrasts. And first we have some contrasts in the settings and the characters, John four, was at a well near Sychar in Samaria. At high noon, a nameless woman came to draw water. Jesus initiated the conversation. The woman didn't know who he was and called him Sir. In John 3, it was at Jerusalem, took place at night. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and he came specifically to talk to Jesus. Nicodemus initiated it, and Nicodemus called him rabbi. So, let's look at those, 1 John 4. Jesus' initiation of the conversation in John 4 was very radical. In fact, the woman was probably shocked that he spoke to her, for Samaritans and Jews were bitter enemies. At the time of the exile, some Jews stayed behind and intermarried with the Canaanites, forming a new tribe that combined Jewish and Canaanite worship. Because of this, the Jews considered the Samaritans racially and religiously inferior. As well, it was scandalous for a Jewish man to speak to a strange woman in public. And women came to draw water early in the morning so they could have it for the housekeeping chores for the entire day. So her coming at noon indicates that she was a moral outcast, even within her own marginalized part of society. Thus, when Jesus spoke to her, he reached across every significant barrier that people put up between themselves, including racial, cultural, gender, and moral barriers. Jesus reached across all human divides in order to connect with her. In John 3, we have a Pharisee, a religious and civic leader, a member of the assembly of the Hebrew high court judges. He was devout, dogmatic, ritualistic, and Jesus calls him the teacher. When he called Jesus, who was a young man with no formal training rabbi, it also showed that he was fairly open-minded and discerning. So in Nicodemus, you have an admirable person, disciplined, honest, moral, religious, open-minded, and somewhat radical himself, In that he would come to speak with Jesus, even if at night. Then we have contrasting tactics by Christ. John, I'm sorry, Jesus surprised the woman at the well with his gentleness and only slowly confronted her with her spiritual need. I might have been tempted to begin with, you need to be born again, for surely she would fit all of my definitions of a sinner. But Jesus began by saying, if you knew who I was, you would ask me for living water and if you drink that water, you will never thirst again. Now, people who live in an arid climate next to a desert know a lot about thirst. And Jesus was saying, I've got something that for you that is as necessary to you spiritually as water is to you physically, something without which you are absolutely lost. And he revealed that this life-saving water satisfies from the inside. When he said, my water, if you get it, will become in you a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus was talking about soul contentment deep within a person. There's a tendency to think that what will make us happy is somewhere out there, somewhere outside of us. But Jesus said that nothing outside of us can truly satisfy the thirst deep inside. He promised absolute satisfaction in the core of one's being, regardless of what is happening outside of you. The woman asked, what is this living water? Would you give it to me? And Jesus said, go get your husband. She replied, I don't have a husband no you're right he said you have five husbands and the man you're living with right now is not your husband what i think jesus was saying was if you want to understand the nature of this living water i offer to you you need to first see how you've been trying to get it through men and it's not working The woman, shocked by his knowledge of her life and his insight, responded, Sir, I see you are a prophet. And she asked, We worship at this temple here, and the Jews worship worship at the temple in Jerusalem. Who's right? Jesus responded, The time is coming when there'll be no need for a physical temple in order to have access. Overwhelmed, she said, When the Messiah comes, he will explain all these things to us. And Jesus answered, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. That's his interaction with her. With Nicodemus, Jesus was more forceful and direct. Nicodemus began courteously, Rabbi, people say you have a lot of wisdom that God has given you. But Jesus immediately confronted him, saying, you must be born again. See, I would have done it the other way. I would, John 4, I would have said that. But Jesus says it right off the bat to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, who has spent his life worshiping God according to strict Jewish tradition, must have been offended as well as perplexed by this strange pronouncement. Jesus was pressing him on his self-satisfaction. What did you have to do, Jesus asked, with being born? Did you work hard to earn the privilege of being born? No, not at all. You don't earn it or contribute anything to being born. It's a free gift of life. And so it is with the new birth. Salvation is by grace. No moral efforts can earn or merit it. You must be born again. And then we have contrasting outcomes. The Samaritan woman, the woman who had no influence, the woman who was an outcast, goes to her village and after being with Jesus, she, she talks to the whole village and they all want to hear more. Um, some of them kind of are won over by hearing her words, but they come, they ask Jesus to stay two more days and many of them believe because of Jesus' words. As for Nicodemus, the man who was very influential, this discussion ends with no further remarks from John. The man of influence at that point appeared to have none in that situation. However, we do know that Nicodemus reappears in the Gospel of John once in chapter 7 while trying to bring some order in the midst of a discussion about what they'll do with Jesus and, of course, at his burial. Now, out of all of that, I want to draw just some comparisons that are our conclusions, Okay. Number one, we are all thirsty and need living water from inside. After reading the stories, it seems obvious that both the woman at the well and Nicodemus were thirsting for something more. The woman was trying to satisfy her thirst with men. Nicodemus was trying to satisfy his with religious works. And if both of them, such polar opposites, were thirsty, it seems reasonable to say that everyone alive who doesn't know Jesus is also thirsty, looking for the answers to the deep longings within their souls. Sadly, most people can't recognize soul thirst for what it is as long as they think there's a chance they can achieve their dreams and be successful. And so they may live their entire lives without admitting the depth of their spiritual thirst. And in truth, those people who actually do reach their dreams are often shocked to discover that achieving these longed-for desires doesn't satisfy either. Indeed, it may enhance their inner emptiness. In an article in Guideposts, July 9, 1994, I don't know how many of you know the name Boris Becker. He was a tennis player. He won Wimbledon. He's quoted in that article in Guideposts, I had won Wimbledon twice, once as the youngest player. I was rich. I had all the material possessions I needed. It is the old song of movie stars and pop stars who commit suicide. They have everything, and yet they are so unhappy. I had no inner peace." Quote. Becker reached all these things, and in the end, they didn't satisfy his thirst in the slightest. There's also a famous Sophia Loren interview in which she said she had everything, awards, marriage, but that, quote, in my life, there is an emptiness that is impossible to fulfill, period, end quote. Perhaps no one has said it better than American writer, David Foster Wallace. An award winning, best selling postmodern novelist. He once wrote a sentence that contained a thousand words. I had to throw that out, I thought that was so fabulous. <laughs> a few years before committing suicide at the age of 46, he gave a commencement speech at Kenyon College and he said, Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship, and the compelling reason for maybe choosing some kind of God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, and you end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, You end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. And the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they are default settings. Wallace, an unbeliever, understood that everyone trusts in something for their salvation. Everyone bases their lives on something that requires faith. Wallace's words are terrifying. Something will eat you alive. Jesus says, unless you're worshiping me, unless I'm the center of your life, unless you're trying to get your spiritual thirst quenched through me and not through these other things, unless you see the solution must come inside rather than just pass by outside, then whatever you worship will abandon you in the end. So everyone is thirsty that doesn't know Jesus. Second, we all need to be born again. What Jesus said to Nicodemus was astonishing. Jesus said the sinners outside on the street were in the same position spiritually as he was. Both were equally lost Both needed to start from scratch, both had to be born again, and without eternal life, something would eat them alive. And that life was going to have to be a free gift. Most people probably understand why Jesus would would regard the woman at the well as a sinner in need of salvation. But why would Jesus tell this good man that he has done essentially nothing to earn a place in heaven? Here's the answer. Jesus is working on a deeper understanding of sin than many people have. Sin is looking to something else besides God for your salvation. It is putting yourself in the place of God, becoming your own savior and Lord as it were. One way to do this is to break all the moral rules in your pursuit of pleasure and happiness like the woman at the well. This makes sex or money or power into a kind of salvation. But there's also a religious way to be your own Savior and Lord. That is to act as if your good life and moral achievement will essentially require God to bless you and answer your prayers the way you want. What is insidious about this is that religious people constantly talk about trusting in God, but if you think your goodness is even contributing to your salvation, then you're actually being your own savior. You're trusting in yourself, and your heart will be increasingly filled with pride, self-righteousness, insecurity, ENVY AND SPITE. THE THIRD, WE ALL NEED JESUS. CLEARLY, BOTH OF THESE PEOPLE NEEDED JESUS. IN FACT, EVERYBODY HAS GOT TO LIVE FOR SOMETHING. AND JESUS ARGUED THAT IF HE IS NOT THAT THING, IT WILL FAIL YOU. FIRST, IT WILL ENSLAVE YOU. AND SECOND, If you do achieve it, it will fail to deliver the fulfillment you expected. Every other Savior but Jesus Christ is not really a Savior. Jesus is the only Savior who, if you gain him, will satisfy you, and if you fail him, will forgive you. There was a revival among the Samaritans because Jesus was tired and thirsty. And he was tired and thirsty because he, the divine Son of God, maker of heaven and earth, emptied himself of his glory and descended into the world as a man subject to weariness and thirst. On the cross, just before he died, Jesus again said, I thirst. AND THIS TIME, HE MEANT MORE THAN JUST PHYSICAL THIRST. JESUS EXPERIENCED THE LOSS OF RELATIONSHIP WITH HIS FATHER BECAUSE HE WAS TAKING THE PUNISHMENT WE DESERVED FOR OUR SINS. THERE, HE EXPERIENCED THE ULTIMATE TORTUOUS THIRST, OF WHICH THE WORST DEATH BY DEHYDRATION IS ONLY A HINT. AND BECAUSE JESUS CHRIST EXPERIENCED COSMIC THIRST ON THE CROSS, YOU AND I CAN HAVE OUR SPIRITUAL THIRST SATISFIED. IT'S BECAUSE HE DIED THAT WE CAN BE BORN AGAIN. HE DID IT GLADLY. SEEING WHAT HE DID AND WHY HE DID IT WILL TURN OUR HEARTS AWAY FROM THE THINGS THAT ENSLAVE US AND TOWARD HIM IN WORSHIP. SO REMEMBER, Everyone you meet who doesn't know Jesus is thirsting for something they can't define. They need the new birth, and the only answer to their needs is Jesus.